This podcast is sponsored by the American Society for Information Science and Technology. Since 1937, ACIST has been the Society for Information Professionals, leading the search for new and better theories, techniques, and technologies to improve access to information. By the IA Summit. This year, your peers and industry experts spoke about how topics such as social networking, gaming, patterns, tagging, taxonomies, and a wide range of IA tools and techniques help users experience information. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For other events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. At the 2008 IA Summit in Miami, Florida, Jared Spool gives an enlightening and entertaining keynote address entitled Journey to the Center of Design. There's a growing sentiment that spending limited resources on user research takes away from the essential design activities. Previously, fundamental techniques such as usability testing and persona development are now regularly under attack. And let's not forget that today's shining stars such as Google, Facebook, Twitter, and the iPod came to their success without UCD practices. I hope everyone enjoys the keynote address from the summit. Cheers. Keynote, you get to do uh, sort of pontificating. So I thought I was pontificating. 
stones, and we're going to talk about um, uh, uh, why uh, HP.com really sucks. And uh, just to name a few. Uh, and and uh, uh, but I want to start by actually I, I was I was recently at the Kai conference in Florence, and one of the comments that came in on the on the Kai evaluation form I happened to see was that Kai, which is the Computer Human Interaction Conference, is a fairly academic conference. There's lots of research papers that are presented, and one of the people who attended wrote on their form that they weren't they weren't as happy for this year's presentation because there wasn't enough blood. So I thought we'd start with a celebrity death match. <laughs> and the celebrities that I've chosen, I've decided uh, for today, is the folks at 37 Signals versus Don Mormon. <laughs> now, this isn't just a random pairing. These two actually paired themselves up all for me. You see, a few weeks ago, Wired Magazine came out with an article about, uh, about 37 Signals. And it was this sort of, you know, these are the brash kids from Chicago who are defying all the rules of business and building great products and all this, you know, sort of hero worship stuff. And it was a very interesting article. And, and uh, uh, all of a sudden, uh, uh, there was this, this sort of real con controversy, or as Richard would say, controversy, uh, uh, that came from this. And uh, the folks at 37 Signals said in the article, they said, we're not designing for others, we're designing for ourselves. Okay? And if you've paid any attention to 37 Signals and their product, basically every campfire and stuff, this comes out so much in their work. This is, they, 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 they wouldn't put a calendar into their Basecamp product for years because they just didn't understand why you want it. And even though users kept asking for it over and over again, they just didn't do it. And uh, Don Norman, read this article, and, and, and his response to this was, I've tried their products, and although they have admirable, admirable qualities, they never have quite met my needs. Close is not good enough. After reading the article, I understand why. The developers are arrogant and completely unsympathetic to people who use their products. Now, I gotta tell you, Don Norman calling someone arrogant to begin with <laughs> is an interesting thing. Mr. Kettle, I believe Mr. Pop is referring to your color. Um, so that in itself got my attention. But what was really interesting about this was Don is coming from this, from, from being one of the people who was in this field before I was in this field. And Don came out of this, having worked at UCSD, uh, from the world of, uh, don't mind Stacy, she just randomly feels the need to nest. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, Don uh, uh, came in, comes to this uh, uh, from this heavy sort of academic psychological space, and he really sort of was one of the people who started talking about how we can't just think about designing for ourselves, we have to think about the people we're designing for and how to design for them. So it makes sense that he would pick up on this and he would really sort of go for it. But the 37 Singles people have actually been really popular, really successful, and it's very interesting because they don't do that. They don't do what Don says they should do. And the thing is, they're not the only ones. Over the last few years, Apple has been 
piece by piece shutting down their user research organization. The iPod was created with virtually no user research. And so, uh, <laughs> apparently I just danced on second life. The only thing I've seen people do on Second Life, I'm not going to do. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so they've been very successful. Apple has been shutting down their user research labs. The iPhone came out with no sort of formal usability testing, no sort of uh, uh, formal user research. So, so there is this movement afoot that says maybe this idea of designing with users in the center is not the only approach, it's not the only way to do things. And maybe there's another way to think about the problem, there's another way to think about how this is going to work. And so to talk about this, I thought I'd go into a little bit of history and talk about where this notion of user-centered design first came from. And if we sort of step into the time machine and go back, it came from this. This is the IBM 360 mainframe. Just out of curiosity, how many people here actually worked on one of these? See, I love speaking at these sorts of conferences because people can relate. I, I do a lot of talk at, like, at Microsoft where the average age is like 14. Most of them are prepubescent. And so, like the product managers. And, um, but it's nice to talk about it. Now, just out of curiosity. This came out, this, this system actually uh, uh, came out in 1964, but this version is like from 1972. How many people weren't born yet? Just uh, now that's impressive. <laughs> I hate the idea that I actually have worked on equipment that's going to be The IBM 360 was, was an interesting device. For one thing, I want to draw your attention to this big red button right here. That big red button shut down the whole thing. You press that, boom, boom, it shuts it down. It was, if you were to use it when like, sparks were flying. And, uh, uh, and then you had, if you press that button, I remember this because I got this lecture on the first day, don't press the button unless, you know, something really bad is happening because uh, it takes like a day and a half to get a technician in to undo whatever that button does. It shuts down everything and everything has to be redone. So, so the big red button was a problem. But the thing about this device, what I wanted to talk about, was that this was developed by engineers for engineers, right? They, uh, uh, the people who used this thing were not normal people. <laughs> they, they were a, a group of themselves, and, and, and they were very, very highly skilled. You had to have really a, a, a certain way of thinking about the world to be able to operate one of these things. And they were also very highly trained. And when they were using it, they were focused completely on it, right? Their day was focused on making this thing work, serving this master. That's what they did. That was their, their focus. Now, back in 1980, uh, uh, IBM worked on a different product. They worked on this. It's the display writer. This is a $15,000 word processing unit. Okay? All it did is word processing. Look at the size of that keyboard. It weighed 32 pounds. The 
keyboard, just the keyboard. <laughs> and this thing was not designed for engineers. This was designed for office workers. And what was interesting about this was that you had to take a completely different approach. You had to think about just why is it the people working on it? And the people who were using this were not skilled in using this device. They were secretaries and stenographers and office assistants and people who were skilled, but they were not skilled in technology by any stretch of the imagination, nor were they really trained with it. They, they, to use this device, you had to go to classes, and you would learn how to save a file and load a file and, and change the ribbon and all these things. But this was not the extensive training that the engineers received, which was multi-year training. This was a few weeks in class, and hopefully that would do the trick. And finally, these people could care less about the device. They only cared about the data that they were working on in the device and the context that that data was being operated in. So it was a completely different thing. And the techniques we used when we were designing stuff for engineers don't translate for designing things for people who aren't focusing on the tool, who aren't going to be highly trained. And that's where this notion of user-centered design was. We actually had to think about, well, gee, what does the user know? What do they come to the table with? How do they use it? How do they think about it? No one had thought about this before. No one had, you know, if you ever saw the movie Apollo 13 where, where, where they're in the control room and they're trying to figure out how much air they have left and everyone whips out their slide rules and starts working with it, they all knew what a slide rule was. They all knew how to use one. These people did not. These people were a completely different breed of folk. And other than marrying them, they didn't know how to relate to them in any way possible. <laughs> so it was um, designing for these people. We had to come up with a whole new process for coming up with with, with software and hardware that took this into account. This is where user-centered design was born. And it was really this reaction of moving from this space where we were doing things only for, for highly skilled folks, where we could let things slip through the crack and they would read the manual, they would understand how to do this stuff, they would go through the work, and start to work with these non-engineers. And of course, all the original user-centered stuff it, interestingly enough, it didn't come out of the world of engineering or design. It came out of the world of, soft, of psychology. The first people in this field were all trained psychologists. They were all psycho cognitive psychology was all focused at the time on human capability, human memory, human movement, all these things. And so it was a natural outcome of that. Um, and there was a human factors part of the field too. Human factors started about 50 years before in sort of corporate industrial efficiency and was working in that, but had really come under its own right at about the same time when uh, uh, nuclear power plants started melting down outside Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and the Department of Energy showed up at, at the annual meeting of the Human Factor Society, which had 264 people in attendance that year, and said, uh, uh, after learning that you know human factors played a role in the Three Mile Island meltdown, we decided we need to hire human factors people. Where can we find three thousand? <laughs> and so the human factors field really sort of blossomed at that point, and and all of a sudden uh, we saw this influx. But it wasn't from a, a, a process of delivering products or delivering uh, 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 software. It was out of this psychological and, and time and motion study stuff that it came from. 
and it had a promise with it. And it was really popular with ourselves. We used to go around talking about how everything was going to be uh, user-friendly. That was the term that everything was used, user-friendly. It got so overused that it was like, you know, new and improved on a box of pie. But it, it, everything was going to be user-friendly, and, and the promise was, was that if you made things user-friendly, if you created these, these things with the users at the center of the design process, then you would get better market acceptance, you would sell more product, people would love you more, you know, they, they would uh, go to bed holding your logo, all that stuff. <laughs> and that brings me to the elephant in the room. The, the problem with this idea, the problem behind all this, is that this idea of user-centered design, it's never worked. It never has actually produced anything. And that's what's really interesting. We can't point to any instance where this was the key variable of success. We've been doing it for 30 years now, and we can't do it. Now, my company, User Interface Engineering, we're a research company. Some people think we're a consulting company. We don't consult, we have to do work when you consult, and we don't like doing that. So, so we found the less we do, the more we can charge, so we just do research. And <laughs> I wonder what Don was going to say about me. Um, and so we've been researching for the past five years or so, and I've reported some of the results here. We've been researching what it takes to create great designs. So if your company wanted to uh, come out with the next you know, iPod or Netflix or Nintendo Wii of your industry, what would it take? How would you hire the people? What would it be? So we've been doing all this research. And one of the great questions is, is this question here. How do the best teams create great designs? And to be able to share what we've learned from research, I want to talk about some of the stuff we found. We've been going and talking to different teams, all sorts of different teams. And one of the first things we do is we assess where on the sort of scale they are in terms of producing great experiences. So are they a team that regularly can come out with products that people love, that have great experiences, or are they a team uh, that tries to do that but really, really struggles? And so that's sort of the spectrum that we're looking at, from people who succeed to people who really struggle. They want to do it, but they struggle. And as we've been doing this, we've been sort of looking at the way that they work and how they do their projects. And one of the things we found early on was that there's a way to think about how you get things done. And at the center of this way to think about how you get things done is this idea of process. Process, um, it's a misused term, it's, a heavy, it's, it's, it's very overburdened, but we have used process in a very particular way. It is the steps required to accomplish something. The steps, actually the steps followed to accomplish something. So sometimes you'll hear, we'll go into organizations and they'll say, yeah, our big problem is we don't have a process. But they've delivered things, they've shipped things, so they must have had a process to get those things out. It may not be a process that they could repeat. It may not be a process that they'd ever want to repeat, but they had a process. So think of a process um, like a recipe for, for cooking something. My mother is an amazing cook. She's, she's an absolutely stunning cook, a master chef. And she has, she's, she's of Hungarian descent, so she has all these great old Hungarian recipes. And one of her favorites, one of my favorites, is her chicken paprikash. And for years I've been asking her for the recipe for her chicken paprikash. And she tells me every time, I don't have a recipe. I just do it. I've been making it since I was 14 years old. 
I just make it. I don't. I said, well, you must have a recipe if you make it. She said, no, no, I don't. I just make it. I don't have a recipe. You know, so she, I do it different every time, she says. But I bet you if I stood next to her when she made it one time, and I wrote down every ingredient she put in, and I wrote down the order she put it in and what she did in every step, when I was done, I would have a recipe. She'd be the first to tell me that she would never make it that way again. And that's okay, because I can now have the recipe. <laughs> but that's the idea, right? So that's a process. A process can be a one-time instance. It doesn't have to be repeated, and it's okay. You have to have had a process if you've got it done. That's the way it works. What people confuse process for is actually this other thing, which we call methodology. Methodology is this notion of repeatability, the ability to, to uh, uh, do the same thing over and over. And organizations love methodologies because the idea that if they do something well, they should be able to just do it again and get it to happen at the same time, that's a brilliant thing. And so methodologies actually have their own little scale where they go from sort of ad hoc methodologies where people just sort of pick up a habit and just do it over and over again to formalized methodologies where you write everything down and you put it in a special notebook, you give it a funny name and you let consultants charge really big money for it. And so you've got this sort of scale of methodologies that, 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 that work. And then there's this thing at the far end of the scale, which we call dogma. <laughs> and dogma, well, let me explain dogma. The best way to explain dogma is to actually talk about uh, the government organization, which is most famous right now for their dogma. And that would be the Transportation Security Authority. These guys are specialists in dogma. They agree. Now, TSA uh, uh, formally stands for Transportation Security Administration, though some people have suggested it stands for thousands standing around. <laughs> Has created this entire way of thinking about getting to the airport, which is new and novel and, and just filled with adventure. One of the pieces of adventure has to do with the idea of the 311. Now, if, you, if you don't live in Miami, then you've experienced the 311. The 311 says you're allowed to take three ounce things, stick them in a single uh, 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 one quart bag. That's 311, right? And if you can't fulfill that need, if something is more than three ounces or it doesn't fit into your single three ounce Ziploc bag, then it must be dangerous material. And of course, the TSA, looking out for the good of all people, take these dangerous hazardous materials and they safely store them where no one will get hurt if in case they explode. So this, of course, is safe in their mind. Now, the idea of, of, of this is actually very interesting. Being that I travel, I've got 25 conferences a year, so I'm always on airplanes, I'm always going through security. And I've gotten to see some things over time. For instance, one of the things I learned is that uh, cream cheese contains a little container of cream cheese that you buy at the, at the shop right outside the TSA. Uh, 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 this, this is uh, something you can take through security, interestingly enough. Uh, they allow this. They, they don't even require you to put it in the little bag. Now, it might be, if you look real close, the label of this cream cheese has the word real in quotes. So it might be. <laughs> Don't you think that would send up alerts? Well, if it's not real, what is it? But, okay. So cream cheese is good. Yogurt, this is not so good. You're not allowed to 
take yogurt through security. Okay? It's a gel. Apparently cream cheese is not a gel. I don't know what it is, but it is not a gel. It's cream cheese. But yogurt is a gel. You can't take it through. So they've decided that this is safe, but this is bad. Right? And we see this all the time here. This is cream cheese. It's safe. And this is yogurt. It's bad. Bad things explode. They, they're, they're, you know, terrorists. We, we don't want the terrorists to have yogurt. Cream cheese they can have. And I have all these different stories. So one day I was going through security, and there was uh, 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 this really cute woman in the line in front of me. And she puts her stuff through the machine, and she gets to the other side, and I put my stuff through the machine, and I wait for it, and I get to the other side. When I get to the other side of the machine, uh, there's the woman is having this discussion with the TSA agent about this one thing of lotion that she has, a single tube of lotion that isn't in a plastic bag. And it has to be in a plastic bag or she can't take it on the plane. And apparently it's a valuable piece of lotion. She doesn't want to just throw it out. But she says to the guy, do you have any bags? He says, no, we don't have any bags here, but there are bags at the other security station down, down on the other side of the airport. She's like, well, I have to go get my flight. I can't go out of security and grab a bag and then come back. But she said, well, I'm sorry, you have to put it in the bag. She says, does anybody have a bag? So I said, well, I have a bag. She said, oh, thank you. And so yeah, I like being a girl with cute women. That's one of my favorite things. And, and so, so she said, oh, that's so nice of you. So I, having just come through security, I take the things out of my bag. <laughs> and as I'm doing that, the guy looks at me and says, what are you doing? I said, I'm giving her my bag. Like 
you know, unwarranted search and, and seizure. And they said, no, 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 we have complete authority to do this. Well, show me. I'm sorry, that's classified. We can't show you. And so it's just this whole sort of mass of stuff. And that's dogma. Right? That's dogma. And we have the same thing in our field. We have this unquestioned belief that there are things that must work. And, and they, must, they must be the way we do things. And we just follow them blindly without ever questioning them. And, and it's the same sort of theater. It's the same sort of thing. Now, as we've been doing our research, we found that well, what we were thinking, so we go out, we talk to these teams, and we assess what is their process and their methodology. We're trying to figure out what these things are. What we were thinking when we went into the research five years ago was that what we would find is that those organizations that are extremely successful at getting great experiences out have discovered some methodology or some dogma that actually works for them, that actually succeeds. And so we wanted to see if that hypothesis was correct. But what we found was that we needed to pay attention to something else. And what we needed to pay attention to was the stuff that happens on the other side of the process. And that starts with this idea of techniques. Now, I said a process is a series of steps to get things done. The techniques are the things that go into each step. One or more techniques is part of each step. And there are little independent things. So for example, when you cook, when you cook chicken pot pots, in fact, one of the things you have to do is you have to make a roux. Now for those of you who've never made a roux, it's actually very simple. You just take some flour and some milk, you put it over low heat, and you stir it. But it's not so simple, because getting the heat right or wrong is really important. You have this rate at which you stir is really important. There are some real sort of practical elements that you can only get by just doing it over and over again. The nice thing about a roux is the ingredients, flour and milk, are so cheap that you can screw it up five times and still get your meal done, right? And so, so you just sit there and you and you keep doing it. And if it, if you have it too hot or you don't stir it enough, it burns. Or if you if you cook it at too low heat, it doesn't quite cook right. You have to find the exact sort of perfect balance, and that just takes practice. And that's a technique. Once you've mastered that technique, you don't just use it for chicken pot You use it for uh, desserts, you use it for soups, you use it for gravies, you use it for all different parts of the meal, and you use it independent of the cuisine. If one wants to think of cuisines as methodologies, you, you know, Mexican food, French food, German food, Hungarian food, Chinese food, they all have rooms in them. So, this is just an independent technique that once you master it, you can use it a million different ways. And techniques turn out to be really important. And there's, a, there's sort of a, on the far end of the spectrum, there's something else that, that we couldn't figure out a name for it, so we just called it tricks. And tricks are techniques that you use, um, uh, but not for the purpose they were intended, for something completely different. The best way I have to explain it is a few months ago I needed to call a plumber. And you know, it occurred to me when I was trying to find a plumber that I never once called a plumber and asked them what methodology they follow. <laughs> I don't know what a plumber would say if I asked them what methodology they follow. <laughs> well, we've been using a waterfall model. <laughs> where we have the inputs and then the outputs and we track the flows between them. But, Lately, we've been moving our organization more to an object-oriented model, where we treat every drip of its own, as its own object, and we just send it a message that says, fix yourself. <laughs> what would a plumber say? I don't know. All I know is this. I hire the plumber, the plumber comes to my house, he drives up into the driveway, I'm very excited about this, 
I go running into the driveway, he opens up the back of his truck and has all this stuff in it, which I get had just come straight from the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> he took the materials and put some of them into a, a, a toolbox-like thing. He brought them in the house, we went into the basement, he looked up at the pipe, he rummaged through the toolbox to something, he grabbed something in it, uh, 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 and he picked it out, he started banging on the pipe. I said to him, I said, how did you know, without seeing the problem, how did you know you were going to need that tool? He said, well, uh, I didn't really. And then I asked the question I shouldn't have asked. Said, is that the right tool to use for this?
to get rid of this notion of user-centered design. Maybe we should stop thinking in this term. Now, I know there are people who are going to be saying, oh my god, if, if, if I've just spent the last five years just trying to convince management to do this, and they sent me to this conference, and now I'm going to it doesn't work, right? And what about all those products that are easy to use, right? And certainly products today, in many ways, are much easier to use than that display writer was. We've seen great progress, things are better. How did we get here if we didn't think about users in the process? How do we do that? And my suggestion is that maybe it's not the process. Maybe it's not the methodology, maybe that's not it. But maybe we need to have something like user-centered design, not for our own purposes, but for other people, for somebody else. And this comes to the story of stone soup. Now, the story of stone soup is an old folk tale. It goes back hundreds of years. And it's about a traveler who was traveling from village to village. And in those days, the tradition was that because there weren't restaurants per se, uh, when you came to a village, you would sort of knock on doors and you would ask people uh, if they had a place to stay and you could stay the night and maybe a little bit of food they could spare. And, and the tradition was, it was good karma to give people what they had. But this particular traveler on this particular day in this particular village started knocking on doors only to find out that the village had been suffering a massive drought and a massive famine. And they were barely able to feed themselves. And they just felt they had nothing to give travelers. And so every door he knocked on, he got the same answer, which is, we don't have enough for ourselves, so we can't share, I'm sorry. And there was no other village for, for hundreds of miles. So this, this, you know, he was just not going to get anything unless he did something drastic. So he decides to make camp in the center of the village. And uh, uh, he sees somebody, he says, uh, uh, I'd like to make some soup. And I have materials here to make some of it, but I just need one thing, which is, which is I need a pot. Can you get me a pot? So the person goes off and says, yeah, I have a pot. He goes and grabs a pot. He's sort of curious, but he doesn't see anything with him. And he brings the pot over, and the, and, the, and the traveler takes out of his bag, he takes a stone. And he takes the stone, and he puts it in the bottom of the pot. And with a stick, he starts stirring the stone in the bottom of the pot. And the guy says, what are you doing? He says, I'm making stone soup. And so the, 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 the villager says, what's that going to taste like? And now other villagers are sort of coming around, and they're, they're really sort of curious, because things like this don't happen in the village very often. And nothing happens in the village very often. And, and so, he's, uh, uh, so the crowd is sort of gathering. He says, what's it going to taste like? He says, well, you know, it would taste better. I had some water. And someone says, you know, I got a little water in the well. I, I could fill this up. I'd be interested in seeing what's going to happen. So they go and get some water, and they pour it in the kettle. And, uh, and, and, and someone lights a fire, and they start cooking this, this thing. Someone says, well, just water and stone, that seems sort of weird. Says, well, you know, it'd have better flavor if we had some carrots. Someone says, I had a couple carrots in my pantry, so they grab some carrots. Uh, uh, he says, you know, meat also is a good flavor. So he goes and grabs meat, potatoes. Next thing you know, the villagers are all sort of bringing all this stuff and they're putting it in the thing and they're cooking it up and got this big pot of soup and then, you know, he serves it to everybody. Everybody enjoys the soup. And then, as a sort of final gift to these people for making this wonderful meal, everybody's really happy. He decides he's going to leave them the stone so that 
when they fall on a hard time together, they can make their own stone soup. And he gives them a stone. And that's the story of stone soup. And, and the recipe for making stone soup <laughs> is fairly well documented. You start with a large, very clean stone. <laughs> and you go through the process. But here's the deal. And this is the really important thing that is never talked about when people talk about the story. The traveler does not believe that that stone makes soup. Okay? He does not walk around giving papers on new methods to get soup out of stones. The stone is an important catalyst to get the community to work together. And having been in this field and done usability work and user experience work now for 30 years with literally hundreds of teams, I can tell you that the usability test and the card sort has nothing to do with creating a good design. You can create incredibly crappy designs with usability tests and card sort. We've proven that time and time again. <laughs> Instead, there's something to the people part of this. Someone who can facilitate the process of getting people to start talking about what the tasks are that people might do and how the people who use this are different from us and all those things. That's the valuable piece. And if you need the stone to make the soup just to get people to focus because they're too much caught up in their own thinking, then you use the stone. But when all the travelers get together at their annual conference, they don't talk about whose stone is better. And so it's, it's really quite key. So if the stone is not, you know, if the methods are not about having the user in the center, what is the goal? The goal is, in fact, to inform the design process. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get design to know something about what's going on. Now, to give you an example of, of what I mean by this, I'm going to talk about a, a design problem which user-centered design doesn't handle very well. But it's a huge problem. It has huge financial implications. I want to talk about a particular big box retailer. I can't tell you who they are because they might have to kill you, but they're a large big box retailer. And they have a million people every day, so that's you know close to 400 million visitors every year come to their website to buy stuff. And they do buy stuff. They buy a, 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 almost a billion and a half dollars worth of stuff every year. So. There's a lot of money that's being transpired through the design of this website. It's a really sort of important design element. Now what's really amazing is the conversion rate for this is 1.6%. And 1.6% is really, really low. I mean, it's, it's average for a conversion rate, which is sort of funny, but it basically means that uh, 90, what, 98.4% of the people coming are not purchasing, right? So only 1.6%. And we, we get so wrapped up in these numbers, and, and you go to e-commerce people, and you say, what is your goal for next year? Well, we're at 1.6%. We'd like to be at 1.7%. Like, my gosh, what about the other 98% that just is failing at buying things from you? I mean, why do people go to these sites and not to buy something from you? They don't go to vacation at these websites. What do they do it? So I mean, that's just what it is. 
way, and I've been doing some knitting. Uh, I'm Jared. Great. Can you, would you mind helping me for a second? And uh, I just want you to stand here and hold this. Can you just pull this up? Okay. You can go down here. So, Chris, would you mind helping me? Okay. Chris, I want you to hold this piece up. I'm going to take this piece of tape off. There we go. Just hold this up. Just make sure it doesn't come off like that. Okay, you guys hold it up high so everybody can see it. So this is a piece of string that represents these, the, the million people who come to the website. Right? And so every yellow piece of this string represents about 15,000 people. This string is actually 67 and a half feet long. And the reason that it's 67 and a half feet long is because it allows me to demonstrate something. From here, 66 and a half feet. Okay? These are the people who come to the site. Each one of these is 15,000. So Chris, quickly, how many customers is that? It, it, it's zero. From here to where Kaleem is, there isn't a single purchase. All the purchases, $1.2 billion a year, happen in this last foot. Okay. So that's the really interesting part about this. But here's the big deal. Can you just, uh, uh, straight, yeah, I, just I want you to show that little red piece there. There's a little three inch red piece here. And this three inch red piece represents 80% of the revenue. 80% of that $1.2 billion comes from that three inches. And that's 0.32% of the total length of the string is 80% of the revenue that this string represents. And what's really quite amazing is that when we look on a daily basis, we get 1,600 customers every day. And 3,200, or 16,000 customers, 3,200 of them represent that uh, three-inch piece of string. Okay. And so that 3,200 is the bulk of the company. Each day, they produce $2.6 million for the organization. If I can get out of that three inches, all I have to focus on is that, is that three inches. If I can get out of them another 10% I'm talking about $100 million of revenue by just focusing on that small group. And this is where user-centered design fails us, because we have no idea how to find just them. We design for the entire string, which is, in fact, a waste of energy. We can't just design for that one three-inch piece, even though that's where all the money is. OK, guys, you just put it down on the ground. Thank you very much. John, if you wouldn't mind collecting this up, John's going to clean it up and take my knitting home. Thank you. A round of applause for Christian Police. So that's a real problem here. Now, part of the problem is we've got this institution issue. You see, there's an old rule of thumb which says what gets measured gets done. And there's a corollary to that, which is what gets rewarded gets done well. And we don't reward in our organization 
everybody who's involved in the user experience on creating great user experiences. We reward them on getting things shipped and using certain technologies and demonstrating tremendous meeting acumen. But we don't reward them on doing this stuff. So we need measures. We need better measures for putting this together, for, for getting this done well. And to do that, uh, to demonstrate some of the measures that we've been working on in our lab, uh, I, I want to now do another little uh, experiment. It's going to take a, a little uh, prep, so I'm going to explain how this is going to work. We're going to do some experiments in measuring brand engagement. Because brand, it turns out, is huge. That little three inches, what's amazing about those folks is they are incredibly loyal to the brand. They shop a minimum of six times every year on that particular big box retailer site. So if we can get them to just come one more time, that's huge. And they come to this, over all the other choices, they come to this particular retailer because they love this retailer. So understanding what that means is about. So if we put measures together to do this, of course, people have been trying to measure brand loyalty for a long time. The traditional way that we do this is, is brand engagement. The traditional way we do this is by measuring loyalty. And loyalty you measure uh, in terms of, of these sort of net promoter type ideas of, of uh, uh, would somebody uh, recommend your brand to somebody else, things like that. Yeah. But it turns out there's more to brand, and there's more things you do. And we've been working with a, a thing that the folks at the Gallup uh, organization put together uh, called the, the Customer Engagement 11, the CD11. And they go farther than loyalty. They start by looking at confidence. And confidence is things like, you know, is this brand someone that I can trust? Or, or uh, uh, do they always deliver what they promise? And sometimes people define brand as a promise, so this sort of takes that to engage. But they go even further than that. They talk about uh, the integrity of the brand. You know, that, it all, that the brand will always treat me fairly, or that, that if you know, I can count on, when I have a problem, I can count on a fair and satisfactory uh, uh, solution. Uh, pride becomes a, a, a piece that we look at. And so we look at, you know, I'm, am I really proud? Am I so proud to be a customer of the brand that I will wear a jacket, or that I'll get a tattoo like a Harley customer, that I'll actually tattoo the brand to my, to my so, so And then finally, uh, we look at passion. And passionate people are so fervent about the brand that they believe that if the brand is here tomorrow, the world will be a substantially better place. And we can measure each of these things. And today, I have done just that. So if you are one of the people who got the little survey, what I want you to do at this point is if you've totaled up your columns on each page, I want you to subtract the column that had agree, or it should be agree minus disagree, right? Only 40 of you know what the hell I'm talking about right now. <laughs> for each page, do agree minus disagree. This means if you have more disagrees, you're going to come up with a negative number. So it'll be a number between 11 and minus 11. And when you've done that, I'd like you to come up to the front of the room, right here, where I've carefully created a scale. And we're going to do a little experiment. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come on. For all four. But we're going to start. What I want you to do, so the first question I asked you was about Starbucks. So I'd like you to get next to the number that you put for Starbucks on this scale of minus 11 to plus 11. We're going to create a human bar chart. Uh, so that's a zero. Okay. There you go. You're a zero. 
I'm going to mean it that way. Right? Neither don't count. Yeah. So, so it's just. So if you strongly disagree, you'll be on the negative side. If you strongly agree, you're positive. So in general, what I'm seeing here is our data comes in. What? That's positive sense. Okay. So this is positive, that's negative. We got that? This is basic math, kids. Okay. So what I'm seeing here is a real bell distribution. Look, we got a couple people here, and it all bunches up around minus two, and then it tails off over here. So we have created a nice bell distribution. Isn't that great? Okay. I'm actually surprised. I did this, when I do this in Boston, I do it with Dunkin' Donuts, and it's all skewed. <laughs> this. So this is actually interesting that it's, that it's sort of... Uh, uh, Very happy towards the negative, very happy. 
round of applause for these folks. Thank you very much.
one measure that we can play with, and I could go on about this, and that will give me stuff to talk about next year. But, uh, uh, but we have to be careful because there's a lot of voodoo techniques out there. There's a lot of things that look like we're measuring important things, but we're not. My first candidate for this is eye tracking. Eye tracking is really pretty. It produces the best deliverables because they got all these different colors in them. And they look really scientific. And this I stole off of, uh, uh, I don't know if you've heard about this guy, Jacob Yosemite. I took, I don't know what he does, but he has all these charts on his site. And this is one of the ones that were 99% good, so, so I, I took the chart. And, um, uh, and so he did this eye tracking stuff. They're big into eye tracking these days. They've proven that guys look at people's crotches and stuff like that. Um, which is an important finding if you've got websites with crotches on them, I guess. Um, and uh, uh, he, he produced this chart, which is an e-commerce page. It's sort of hard to see with the contrast here. But uh, what it says is, in this shopping cart, users didn't look much at the cross-selling offers. That's this stuff down at the bottom, uh, which is a common finding, right? So basically what he's saying is eye tracking proves that people don't look at the things we already knew they didn't look at. And we knew they didn't look at it because, for one thing, nobody buys the goddamn cross-selling products. So we know they don't look at it. They don't sell. So the thing is, we needed a $10,000 piece of equipment and a $30,000 consultant to actually confirm this. And that's the problem with this methodology, is that it actually doesn't tell you anything. In fact, when I was at the Kai conference, there were all these, all these vendors in the exhibit space had all these great uh, uh, visualization tools for eye tracking. And this is a really cool one from iSquare, where it, it, as you move through the site, the time people spend on the pages, the little circles start to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and um, uh, the little diamonds represent where a given user is looking at a time, and they flash all over the street. It's really funky to watch. I have no idea what this thing is talking about, but I can sit there and I can watch it all day long. It's so much fun. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's like Twitter Vision, which is an application that puts up messages of Twitters all over the world. There is no real reason to spend time doing this, but man, it's intoxicating. And that's what eye track is for. It's to, it's, it's to get you excited about actually doing the real work. And maybe this is just the stone in the soup. Uh, 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 in fact, at Google, the head of user, uh, user research there told me that they have two labs. One has eye tracking equipment, one doesn't. And from her perspective, eye tracking is great because the developers will show up at the one with the eye tracking. She can't get to the company the lab. She schedules a test for the lab that doesn't have eye tracking. The developers won't show. But she puts in the eye tracking lab, they do. Because apparently developers, when they're not working on code, like following little blue dots. <laughs> In fact, Sergey Brin apparently has camped out in the lab and won't leave. <laughs> and to her, this is the most valuable thing about eye tracking is it gets the developers in the lab. Which, if that's what it's for, if we can be honest with ourselves, if that's what eye tracking is about, then yeah, that's the stone of the soup. Let's do it. Let's do it. But that's not how I hear it sold. Another one of these is, is site analytics, right? Site analytics produce these incredibly interesting charts for which we don't know what they mean. Right? Here, uh, there's a big doubt. Is that because the user is interested in the content, or is it because they're lost? Either one will produce more time on the site. Which one is it? We can't tell from that data point. 
but Tetris for real work. <laughs> All it's missing is a high score file. And then everybody will be looking at the analytics. So that's the question, right? Is this bad or is this safe, right? Which is it? Is it this is really no different than, than the, the TSA stuff. It's the same sort of theater. So, okay. Got six minutes left, I'll give you the value here. Our research so far has taught us that there are three core attributes that a team needs to have uh, to be able to get, to be in that group that makes them really successful. And those three attributes are a solid vision, a very strong research uh, feedback capability, and the right culture for doing this kind of work. There are actually different types of cultures, but not all of them succeed. There are several that do. And you can boil these three attributes down to some key questions. And we now use these key questions to basically tell us where the organization is on our scale of success to failure. It incredibly predicts. It, it, the, the, the correlation of, of these three questions is really strong. For vision, the question is, can you go up to anyone on the team and ask them, what would, will it be like to use the experience of this design five years from now and get a coherent answer? Not just a coherent answer, but one that matches everybody else's answer on the team. Right? If you can do that, then you've got this vision thing nailed. You think of a vision as a, as a stake in the sand on the horizon that you can't get to today. It's going to take five years to get there. But everybody can clearly see it. And that means that any step you take, you can tell whether you're moving towards it or not. And as a group, even though you're not really talking about it out loud, you can each tell if you're moving towards that flag or away from that flag. And that's what it turns out to be. That's what vision is about. Sometimes you have to take little steps backwards to be able to get there. Like when you're crossing a creek, sometimes the stones in the creek don't go right go where you want. But that's okay because you can see the flag. You know you'll get there eventually. And so that's the importance of vision. Feedback. In the last six weeks, six weeks is a really important number. In the last six weeks, has anyone on your team spent more than two hours, another important number, actually watching the people who will be your users do the things that they will do with your design? I should be able to ask you at any point in time in the organization, uh, in your schedule, and you should be able to give me a solid yes. In fact, I should be able to ask anyone in the organization, and that person will be able to give me a solid yes. Those organizations who do that. Now, what's really interesting is while the Jason Freeds of the world are not doing formal usability testing, they're spending a lot of time watching people use their products. When Apple was developing the iPhone, they spent more than two hours every six weeks watching people use those phones. And it was very clear. It doesn't have to be formalized methodology doing this, but spending the time watching, not talking, not demoing, not explaining, watching and listening is key. And having an organization that is set up to do that constantly is key. That brings us to culture. Culture is, uh, in the last six weeks, 
has someone in your team been rewarded for really fucking up? <laughs> now, in some organizations, that is rewarded consistently, but not in the same way. This is in terms of major design failures. A few years back, I attended a, a presentation by Scott Cook, the founder of Intuit, who talked about how as CEO, he regularly holds failure parties, where they take people who have created big design problems and reward them, giving them huge gifts and having a celebration. And part of the purpose of that celebration is to talk about why this was such an important thing to learn about the customer and why, now that they've learned it, they can be such a better organization. And you have to have an organizational culture that thinks that way. If you're in a culture where any sort of failure is seen as a bad idea, and we must do everything we can to prevent it up front, we can't possibly learn. Because the old saying goes, good judgment comes from experience, and experience comes from bad judgment. So we need to be able to have that in place. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. I'm thinking, at this point, it is definitely time to start retiring, at least amongst ourselves, this notion of user-centered design. No one can define what it is, no one can explain it, no one knows how it works, it doesn't really exist. If we want to use it as the stone, then let's just agree that's what we're going to do, and we can at least stop the damn sessions about it in the conference. But it doesn't really exist. Instead, let's focus on informed design. What information does the design team need to make great decisions? And what techniques and tricks do we have in our toolbox that let us get there? As you're going through these sessions for the next three days, think in terms of techniques and tricks, not methodology and dogma. Think in terms of how can I take a little bit of this and how can I do a little bit of that, and where can I use this thing in a way that the presenter doesn't even think that this is a great way to do this? How am I going to be able to put that forward? And then focus on these three core UX attributes. Do you have a vision? If you don't have a vision, that's the first thing you need to be working on. You should be regularly talking about the vision, making sure everybody knows what's going on. You go and talk. It's very hard to get information out of Apple, right? I, I've talked to a lot of Apple employees. As soon as you start to ask them any questions, they, they dump you right up because there are ninjas stationed all over. Have <laughs> little darts and stuff. <laughs> so, 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 they're not allowed to talk about anything. Family members regularly tell me, yeah, but, you know, my, my husband works for Apple. I can't get him to tell me at all they work for Apple. Right? can't get them to tell me But I have gotten a few of them to tell me, not only do they have a vision for their products, but it goes out for people and they all know what it is. So, they're, they're there. Do you have feedback mechanisms? Are you getting information? Do it in the most gorilla shoestring form. It doesn't have to be expensive research. You don't need the, the fancy lab with the one-way mirror. By the way, it's a one-way mirror, not a two-way mirror. That's a window. <laughs> you don't need the fancy lab. You don't need that stuff. It's an awful waste of furniture and glass. We haven't been testing in the lab in 100 years. You don't have to do it that way. Instead, you, 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 you just need to sit and watch people. You can do it at, at, at a Starbucks, so people here don't like it. Um, so, it's easy. And finally, do you have the right culture? There's different types of culture, right? At Apple, they 
now, and they better damn well be prepared for it. So everybody sort of focuses on that mentality. And, and uh, uh, I've been asking people, right, because you can get them to talk about certain things. So, so I have a question. In fact, whenever you meet an Apple employee, you can ask them this question, you get the answer from it. In Apple, the mecca of good design, what is the software, what is it like to use the software that you use for internal expense reporting? Right? Is it an incredible piece of expense reporting software? Turns out everyone's free to talk about this. It sucks. <laughs> it sucks really bad. No one likes using it. So here we are in this place where good design is, is the hallmark of their success, and their expense or their internal tools suck. And I asked each person, I said, why do you think that is? They all have exactly the same answer. Steve doesn't do his own expenses. <laughs> The bug reporting software, it rocks. It's really slick. Guess what Steve does? <laughs> so that's the culture, but that's not the only culture. You go over to Netflix, a company that's now three times the size of Blockbuster because they built a cool website, right? Netflix doesn't have that. Reed Hastings doesn't run Netflix with the, with the uh, you know, the, the fear of, of God behind it. They have a very completely different culture about experimenting and trying things out and, and putting out a new release of their website every two weeks and seeing what happens. That's how they do it. And lots of different cultures work. And we're trying to catalog these and understand them. But you have to, you have to find what works for you. So that's what I came to talk about. If for some reason you found this interesting, uh, uh, we publish a lot of the things we find in our newsletter, UIE Tips. If you're not signed up, give me your email address. I'll, I'll sign you up or you can sign up on our website. Uh, if you want a copy of these slides, I will send you a copy. Just give me something with your email address on it, uh, and I'll send you to it. But I'll probably just take the MP3 file that they're making, and if it works, uh, uh, put it up on SlideShare, but I'll, let you know, I'll send you an email and let you know when that's available. Uh, uh, so you'll have the whole audio and the, and the, the slides. We also have virtual seminars. The brand stuff that I talked about while I'm doing the seminar, in mid-May, I don't remember the exact date, I think it's the 14th, uh, uh, but don't quote me on that, uh, that uh, talks about designing for branding. I'll go into much more depth on the brand stuff that we just talked about. We have reports on a variety of things. We have our user interface conference with Jess. Is it okay if we donate a seat to the user interface conference for the competition? Yes, okay, cool. So, we'll do that. Uh, everybody who registers and pays, unfortunately the, the free person will get this. Uh, everybody registers and pays in the early registration deadline. We're giving away a flipped video, which is this really cool little video thing that uh, you want. It's the, the newest cool thing. So everybody gets that. Uh, and then uh, we have our, our blog and with podcasts and stuff like that. And we have our website, uide.com, which I'm desperately hoping is usable. Thank you very much for encouraging my behavior.